Yeah, my life lesson is always be willing to accept that you're wrong. Um, and in the interest of time, know that even when you're right, you've been right, that's probably gonna be wrong at some point in the future, even though it was right in the past. So, hey everyone, I am Rush, and welcome to Inspired, the podcast, the community, featuring inspiring people across numerous disciplines with passion to share their wisdom with us. In each episode, I will have insightful and fun conversations with inspiring people on their professional journey, their successes, struggles, lessons learned, and much more. Talking about today's guest, he's an analytics thought leader has over 20 years of experience in product management, marketing strategy, and in helping companies build their data culture. I'm thrilled to have Kirk Munro with us today. Kirk has been a great friend and a mentor to me, always accessible and willing to share his experiences and learnings. Kirk is currently the VP of Strategy and Principal Consultant at Paint With Data, I met Kirk during his previous role at Tableau when I attended one of his amazing sessions on visual analytics. Kirk, thank you so much for joining us today and I'm delighted to have you on Inspired. Uh, thank you, Rish. Um, and I'm, um, I'm flattered to be here and thanks for the kind words. It's, um, I really treasure our friendship and look forward to these talks. So I'm glad we can share one with people this time. Great. Uh, there are like, talking about your experiences. There are so many topics I want to discuss with you today as you have extensive and broad experience in product and analytics space. Uh, but how I generally like to start uh, is to have, uh, you know, you share about you and your journey with our community. Uh, what I understand is you started your career as pharmacist in 1992. So I'm intrigued to know how did you transition into product and analytics space? Um, yeah, it is a different, probably, path than a lot of people would take to, to where we got. So as a bit of a background, uh, I grew up in a, a small city called Sydney in Cape Breton, part of the province of Nova Scotia on the far east coast of Canada. Um, and first, I guess, I, don't, I can't remember how, but at about 10 years old, I discovered a VIC-20 and convinced my parents to get me one for Christmas. And so I started programming without any kind of training by literally hacking other people's programs when that's what hacking used to mean. Um, and I had um, uh, three and, uh, you know, we used to, all we had to program with was three and a half kilobytes. So for all the, you know, uh, people out there who are younger than me, that's like, you know, one one thousandth of a megabyte of, you know, <laughs> gigabytes or right out. So I think what that did was it really taught me uh, first off to be very, um, so what I'm looking at, you know, it taught me to be uh, very efficient in things like not only coding, but thinking, because you, you there was no way to kind of be verbose in the language. Um, but it probably didn't help with for the few times in my professional career that I've actually coded is that I don't comment any code. So no one else like that because you couldn't. <laughs> um, but anyway, what the reason why, if you, if you fast forward about eight years from there to the reason I ended up in pharmacy um, was probably only because when you grow up in a small place like that in Canada at the time, and you do well in school, your options are if you're a science student, you, you become a doctor, or, you know, if you're not science orientated, maybe you become a lawyer. And I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to school for another 12 years. So doctor was out. And 
uh, at the time you could get into a pharmacy degree right out of high school. Now, how the pharmacy degree really helped me, although I wasn't a pharmacist for very long, is compared to a normal science degree, say a standard science degree, I think we did way more probably actual science um, in terms of uh, continually spending time in the lab testing hypotheses. Now, a lot of those labs were chemistry type labs as opposed to uh, you know, physics labs or, or, or computer labs, but still we spent a lot of time, like probably 12 hours a week, typically for four years, we're in the lab, we're just trying to find out, you know, you make a guess at what compound you think it is and you try to figure out what it is, et cetera. And I think that's a really good metaphor for life is to, you know, to make, try to, to set a hypothesis or, you know, a North star, what you're trying to get to, and then test your way to get there. Don't assume you're right, but you have to look at things. You have to collect data to get there. So I think that set me up. Um, my first job out, and then this is what gets to where I ended up becoming a product manager and really caring about data and, and data specifically in terms of making business process more efficient is uh, my first job as a pharmacist. I'm, a, I'm at it for about six months. Imagine I'm in a pharmacy dispensary and uh, I noticed some things. So um, we are, you know, we have a ton of inventory, but the way we reorder inventory, this is back in 93, say, is... Um, when a bottle runs out, you write down on a piece of paper that you need to order it. And someone effectively calls this in, right? And then once a week, we have a pharmacy technician who walks around the shelves and shakes bottles to see if they're almost empty. And I'm like, this is just crazy. Now, granted, this is 93, but it's still crazy. So um, in the last pieces, we're ordering people, like there's about two people a day who we can't fill the prescription because we don't have things. So we have to ask them to come back the next day. And I'm like, that's terrible customer service, right? So um, so what I did was, again, loving kind of both business and technology, um, I got our the store owner to agree first. And then we worked with our uh, wholesaler. In those days, you used to order some direct and some from a wholesaler. And we worked to deal with the wholesaler to get a much better rate if we ordered everything from them. And then we worked with the pharmacy software vendor we had to let us do automatic ordering. So we became the first pharmacy in Canada in maybe early 94 to completely be automated in the way that this was done. No one, literally no one else was doing it in Canada. So, and it did things like we would then we're only short on prescriptions for people about once every second day. So we made that about four times better. Um, we brought our, we cut our turns, uh, or sorry, we doubled our turns. We cut inventory by 33%. It had a big impact. So I, I kind of really got off on that. And then what I did with that was I convinced that pharmacy software vendor that in Canada, they were a US-based company and in Canada, which was a different market, they didn't have a product manager. And it took me about 11 months, but I convinced them they needed one and they needed it to be me. So I didn't know what a product manager was really, but um, I kind of riffed on it and you know, over time convinced them that they needed one. And from that point forward, I kind of really haven't looked back. You know, I've worked at a number of companies and done two startups myself and things, but it all started from that you know, people can't be going around shaking bottles, <laughs> you know, and writing things down by hand. And it's just been a constant journey of how do we use, um, you know, how do we use data to, to make businesses run better since then, I would say. It's an amazing journey, I would say. And uh, product managers do look for, you know, uh, problems uh, to solve always. And I think uh, it's a great example where you saw one. Uh, you knew, you know, this ha needs to be solved uh, and how it needs to be solved and bringing together, you know, both customer problem solving and as well as technology together uh, 
and uh, it has been a great journey thanks for sharing that uh you have been with some big names in the industry and you know have led their product management and marketing strategy uh successfully so what do you think has been your success mantra across all these roles and you know the biggest challenge that you have faced again across all these roles so i think the biggest success comes down to uh two parts that are tightly tied together the first is when you're not in that dispensary uh, to go back to my first example how do you um at get out of people what their problem is at a level that you can actually solve it right so you know we could call that empathy but it's a you know it's a it's a little different than than you know maybe just calling it empathy because it's in some ways it's going deeper right maybe less emotionally deep although um it's also worth knowing how much it frustrates people because then you have a sense of how big of a problem it is but so i think the first thing is to be to be very inquisitive right into legitimately care about um the kinds of things that are getting in people's ways from them you know being their optimal selves say in business right so or or you know you could apply it to you know making the world uh, energy greener or whatever of course right but really understanding um what that problem is at a level that it can be solved and i see people by the way talk about this at too high of a level all the time which we could get into you know they're not actually at the level that's a solvable problem right like at this point anyone who example who says oh there's climate's a problem let's fix it i'm like well climate like, that's not the problem you have to get to a fixable problem within that right so um and then the second part that goes with it is um is take ownership of the solution don't get stuck in the problem right so again like you mentioned as a wrap up to the last question is once you get it and understand it you can't ask that same potential customer what the solution to that is that's your job right so um keep them focused on the problem uh and then you focus on the solution i think um to the second part of the question what makes it hard though is is empathy's hard on both sides empathy's hard to get right at the right level of depth i think right so and what i mean by that is you know we often find ourselves tired or you know we've got our own problems so when we have our own problems and we're tired how are we supposed to you know give up that energy to understand other people's problems um it's sometimes hard and then the next phase is sometimes it's hard if you're a caring person not to get sucked in way too deep into the problem in which case again you're not seeing the solution to the problem you end up in a state of commiserating with the person and owning that problem instead of trying to you know stay detached enough on the solution so it's it's being able to get deep enough that you can really feel the problem but not so deep that that you also can't see the solution right which often they can't see because they're too deep so it's your job not to get that deep so in terms of friendships i think how that wraps up is people and my kids would say this about me too i think is i'm a person that uh people come to for tough love and not to commiserate with right so when they get to the point where they're like yeah i know i need to change i'll go talk to kirk if like i just want to talk through it you know maybe he's not the best guy cuz he's going to try to solution this on me which you know isn't always a good thing you know what i mean strengths are also weaknesses <laughs> So, but those are to wrap that up. Those are kind of the two things. It's like you know, deep kind of listening, whatever you want to call it, the right level of empathy, and then again, knowing that you know you've got to own, you've got to own it. Trying to come up with a solution, you know, you're not going to magically do it. Well, 
I'm sure as we get through the questions, we'll get how we get to those solutions. But that's really what it is, is feeling like, you know, I got to know, I have to really know the problem and I have to be the one to own the solution to it. Right. Uh, I've heard a lot about ha like having empathy and, you know, how it plays a role in product management, uh, but you put it uh, right, having the right amount of empathy as well, uh, because uh, you don't want to get too deep uh, where you don't see the solution. Uh, you don't want uh, you know, less of that empathy that you don't solve the problem. So I think you put it really uh, well, uh, which I, I haven't thought about it in this way. All I have thought about is, you know, having empathy, but this is a really nice way to put it. Uh, and you've also had experience in, you know, sales. And, you know, I think there's tremendous amount of experience in sales strategy and building sales teams along with the product management and marketing that you have had. Uh, do you think that gives you an edge to you that when you wear your product manager hat, that you have had sales experience, you can see how you're going to, you know, take this product to the market and be able to sell and solve customer problems? Yeah, I think that the great thing about life is there's um, there's only a limited number of principles that probably are, are you know, laws that apply across uh, all of life. And I think this is a good one. So it's been 11 years now since the book, The Challenger Sale came out. And I mean, good salespeople knew it before the book came out, obviously. And the book's a little flippant because it's like people used to think it was about relationships, but it's really about when you're, if you're a good salesperson, that you have to be able to challenge your customer. And um, I say flippant because of course you need both, because if you challenge someone before you have a relationship with them, you know, you're just going to come across like an arrogant know-it-all and nobody likes that, right? So they're, you know, the first part is to build a relationship and the way you build that relationship is to, um, uh, you know, to understand the person and take the time to do that. You can't challenge them. And the book does get into this, of course, but um, you do have to be able to understand them before you can challenge them, right? Otherwise, again, you're just being arrogant because you don't know what you're talking about. So um, I think it did help to train, you know, that same, very similar process um, but, um, but, but, but in, in, in a different way. So I guess what I mean is, so unlike, you know, you understand a problem and you build a solution, I think for a sales professional, what it is, is you understand their problem. And again, you still own the solution for them, not expect them to give them the solution. So, um, lots of times, I mean, we're working with a client that comes up now, so it's in the context of Tableau, but you know, you could do this in another product or you could have done in D3 or whatever. And the question I got was, um, if I turned off animations, so picture just chart animations, um, would my dashboard load quicker when say it has 30 graphs on it? And the answer to that's got to be, I think, yes, but your bigger problem is that you've got 30 graphs on the dashboard. Like who can consume 30? So I think it's important not just to give the best sales professionals don't just give the customer what they ask for. They understand what the problem is and they give them the solution to the problem instead of just the solution they're asking for. So, um, and that's where values created and, you know, you don't have to discount as much, et cetera, et cetera. So it's tricky for people though, because it's, it's a, uh, Although it might be a more rewarding, longer term, bigger sale, it's not nearly as easy of a sale. It's just giving them exactly what they're asking for. Right. And if, if you have to break down the process of uh, getting a product out in the market, you know, from your you know, sales or product management experience, uh, right from doing the marketing study of the market and getting it out in the hands of the customers, uh, how would you break that down in, you know, few, few key steps? Uh, 
That's a great question. As as in, to make it very individual for a person, the the first thing I'd say is you you have to find a problem that uh, is significant enough that you're the people are they going to pay for you're going to get funding for right so if you're in the public sector you know that it's worth you, you know it's you find a way to stop the destruction of the brazilian rainforest or whatever the case may be and and then in business you know someone's actually going to pay money for this you know to solve this problem you have so the first thing is to find kind of a big enough yet well-contained enough problem so kind of like empathy has that right level of depth it's the same thing like don't tackle a problem too big right so the that's the first step. And then I always think about it, if you want to be personally successful, uh, and whether you're doing a startup or you're working in, in a big company, hopefully on a nimble team, bringing a product out, is it's always going to work best because problems take a lot, big problems take a long time to solve, is to try to have a then of like a circle of all the problems you care about, right? And if you can get those two to overlap, that's where you want to work, I think, right? So it's hard to work on big problems that you don't care about or can't relate to. So in terms of what well, I talked about empathy, I think that's where you get into empathy drain, where every day you have to get out of bed and go, okay, I have to go um, l- learn more about this problem that I don't care at all about. Like is that it's a hard thing to do for a long period of time. So I think that's all about trying to find your, you know, so that's trying to find the intersection of your passion and, you know, a, a problem that enough people care about to fix, right? Versus say, um, if if it's your passion and not many people want to solve it, then put that in your hobby bucket. So you can still do it, but that's a hobby, not a product, right? Um, and then once you have that big enough problem, I think it becomes really important to break that up into smaller problems. And I've never thought about, I think, like a lot of things start well, like the concept of an MVP. And then I think over time, they often get destroyed because people redefine them, right? So I don't, I've never thought about it as a minimal viable product because a product can be a big, far-reaching thing. I think about it as, um, a, I don't want to recoin a phrase, but something like a minimal viable solution, right? So I don't want to create a new phrase, but it's a solution to a subset of the total problem, right? So that you can learn. And the most important thing you can do is um, you take, when you take your, uh, and, and we think about this in terms of the scientific method, when you take that problem you have, the first thing you should do is come up with a hypothesis of what you think the solution is going to be. You can't possibly hope that the data or problem is going to magically give you an answer. You have to come up with what you think the solution to that is. And then you have to test it, right? So whether it's, um, you're just testing, you know, a data point or you're building a product, it's the same process, right? So you have to go out and you have to get that in real people's hands that have that actual problem and you have to get them to use it um, in order for you to collect data. And I would say uh, get away as far as you can possibly from uh, subjective feedback. Like subjective feedback has a place, but this isn't you know, user surveys, right? This is more how are they, I think a lot in terms of software products is my bias. It's like instrument the heck out of that thing. And instead of asking them what they like about it, see where they're spending their time in it, right? And, you know, the, so those are the important things, like let let their behavior, um, their observed behavior as opposed to their talked about behavior effectively. I'll get you there. And then once you solve that, then keep building to the bigger problem. Uh, I'll give you an example of, I think a startup, that the last startup I did where we did one little part of this right and we did another part of it terribly wrong. And, you know, and it, it also goes to show that when you get too close to something, you really need a good way to check yourself, I think. So we had a startup 
that um, that what we're trying to do, it was an internet travel startup, which I would recommend people not try to take on, but uh, we took on anyway. And the goal we had, and it's a real problem because I talked to a ton of people before I did it. And I could still talk to people today about it. And what it is, is some people travel um, just to get away and unwind. So that's fine. There's like things like, uh, you know, prepackaged, uh, all-inclusive vacations for people like that, right? Um, and then some people travel to experience life. I mean, you can do both, by the way, right, of course. But I was definitely in the bucket where I wanted to travel to experience life. But what happens is trying to plan one of those trips and book it and put it together, you're so exhausted by the end it takes a lot of the fun out of it. I mean, some people like that planning process, but most it exhausts. So we wanted to create an experience, uh, an experience that was as easy as booking a um, very bespoke kind of exact vacation you wanted, as easy as booking an all-inclusive vacation based on learning about you and, and learning about destination. So we used to describe the problem as, imagine you had a best friend who somehow magically moved everywhere in the world, who you could call, who both knew you and that place so they could put an itinerary together for you. So I think it's a solid you know, 10 year vision to try to create that. And someone's going to create it someday. Um, and what we did as a first step is we took something that paid money. And the only thing at least, you know, eight years ago, when we did this, that paid money was hotels. And we picked a better hotel picker, basically, like we gave people um, sliders to say the things they care about, like how far they wanted to be away from walking from the stuff they needed to get to. And uh, it, some amenities, but not a lot. Most of them, or amenities that people don't, uh, I think, care about. So we tested some and we actually had people, we, you know, we had a relationship with Expedia and we actually took um, bookings uh, and um, we actually took bookings on the system and made a little bit of money. And then in hindsight, you know, at the time, I'm sure we were smart, but what we kind of went is like, you know, we didn't want to build a better Trivago or whatever you, you want to say. And so we got away from that and kind of gave up on that to try to get back to solve the bigger problem. Cause we didn't, you know, cause our passion, I guess, wasn't better hotel picking because, you know, Airbnb wasn't, was pretty big then, nothing like they are today, but you know, hotels aren't necessarily a, a big part of those kind of experience trips. Anyway, in hindsight, you know, we should have kept our eyes on the on the problem that we wanted to solve long-term. I'm not saying we would have been successful, but we tried a, a boil the ocean problem solving thing and we just didn't get there. I mean, that'd be another whole podcast on some of the cool things we did. And I think we learned from, but none of them really were producing enough big data for us to learn enough um, to be able to, to ever get there. So I think it's a good example of if we'd stuck to the smaller problems on the path, we might've got there at least, but in hindsight, it was clear when we left that path, it wasn't going to work. And again, I didn't see it because I was close to it. So it's also good to have, I probably should have had a, a better set of mentors um, to help me with that. The, the challenge, I think why we didn't see those mentors just is a fun part of the story, but still on me that I should have saw past it is every VC in the world wants that product. <laughs> so I think they get caught up on it too, right? Because they all have disposable income and want to have, but they're way too busy to plan these trips and probably their people around them don't do it right. And anyway, so it's a cool problem and it's way too big. So the lesson from that is, um, you know, you can keep your eyes on the prize on that thing, but get down to like more specific, smaller problems to solve on the way um, to make sure you learn enough to get to where you want to get to in the end. I, I can relate to that product. My brother uh, built a startup, uh, which was 
a tech internet uh, uh, travel product uh, for a similar kind of experience that you talked about uh, but the timing had been unfortunate for him it was just before covid and then everything right uh, but i'll also pass on these learnings or ask him to listen to the podcast to pick on these learnings from you uh, because it was in a similar space uh, you also talked about you didn't have enough data and you brought in the point of you know data being critical uh, so i'm going to switch to you know how data plays a critical role and especially you know when say organizations when they decide on their product launches and uh, in your experience how has the adoption of data culture changed in the last decade or so yeah so i think there's a good news and bad news story about what's happened with data culture in the last 10 years so um and if you think about any of these things is is uh people process and technology uh in spite of the explosion of data which i i think 10 years ago people were saying at least some people were saying that was going to bury us i think um we've gotten much better at processing data and knowing what data is um good data uh things like data lakes and cloud databases have made it much easier you know back then even though there was less data every time someone asked a question um IT departments would come back and go what's well, going to cost x number of tens of millions of dollars in 2 years to build a data warehouse to answer that question and i think we've gotten a lot more nimble so that's good i think uh, the products to analyze data and in people's basic analysis skills as well have gotten better you know there's a lot more people that have learned uh products like R and Python as well as visualization tools like Tableau and and Power BI. So um and and what's important is that com- computing technology has finally caught up to do some really cool things, right? So uh Bayesian models as an example have been around for like what is it hundreds of years now, at least 150, but computers couldn't run them before. You know, I heard uh I heard Eric Schmidt on a call recently, and I think I'm going to have this right where he said he's a little older than me but not a lot and saying, you know, that the the computer they had at university i think he went to princeton they went to one like you know a good school he i think he said you know at the time of this podcast 6 months ago the iphone was 300 times more powerful than this computer that everyone had to share at the entire university right so the the underlying pinnings to do a data to actually pull off a data culture much better than they were 10 years ago the other thing that's better is that you first have to admit that you have a problem before you can solve a problem of of people using data so now you see in executive surveys that executives know they have to do this i think there was at least a lot of talk if not in surveys behind the scenes that with executives like i don't need all that data stuff my gut instinct is awesome i think there's a lot less of that today okay i would say the downside though of of where data culture and and surveys like McKinsey surveys etc will show this where data culture hasn't moved enough yet uh, in my observation is that is that people are still presenting i would say information instead of insights is the way i think about it so as an example back to our sales reps i think people say well we need to use data so now we know very quickly say who our top 10 um uh, our top 10 sales reps are so it's a simple example that probably could have been answered 10 years ago but there's lots like that right so they go so now we know who they are we know who they are quicker than we ever so, but people are kind of asking 
and answering, you know, who, what I call who and what questions with their data instead of how and why questions. So I still think it's pretty typical. Here's our top 10% of our sales reps. Um, we're going to send them to a club and if any, you know, a sales club and celebrate them. And if anyone asks how they did it, um, we're going to, we're going to then make up a whole bunch of reasons on why they do it based on what we think, as opposed to, I think we should be at the stage that it's, it's just, it's table stakes. Now it's easy to know who your best customers are, uh, you know, who your best selling products are, you know, which ones aren't working, why, you know, which products aren't being adopted. And we're not spending nearly enough time on the why and how that is, which is where the value really becomes, because that's where change happens. One's just observing what's going on. And the other one is actually doing something about it. Right. So, um, Another way, I think, I, I think it was from the same Eric Schmidt interview I liked is he goes, um, at Google, what we implemented wasn't just a, a culture of questioning everything, but it was also interrogating everything. So again, it's not, you could ask people, well, why, you know, why are those top 10% your best sales reps? And when they answer the question, that's not good enough. Then you have to interrogate that. Like, do you have data to back that up? Do you, are you sure that's what it is? Or do you feel that's what it is based on, like, have you asked their customers? Have you looked at their behavior versus other people's behavior? So um, I think that's the next step in data cultures. People, um, to, to shorthand it, I always call it, Instead of presenting information, have people present insights, right? But you can think about it in questions is to get away from the who and what questions and get way more to the why and how questions. And sometimes it's as simple as, as teaching people the skills to say, you know, if you present someone with change over time on a, a line chart, you know, use a statistical model that you don't even need to understand to highlight the outliers on it and, and always give people the ability to drill when they see an outlier to the lowest level of detail to try to figure out, you know, which, you know, transaction, which customer interaction caused that so that, you know, again, you can interrogate it beyond just question it. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking like, do you think uh, this, this could be due to, you know, the maturity, data maturity, the organization uh, is that, you know, where they're looking at just the information or they are able to, you know, investigate as well. I, I'm just thinking it could be, you know, there are organizations who are much matured in their data analytics, you know, transformation or journey who are able to answer that. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? It's a great question. I think it's a two-parter. So, and I'm not mature. I struggle with the word mature in some ways because I think the newer a company is, probably the better their data is to answer the question. So are they actually more mature or were they lucky enough to be born in an era where they were collecting data from the time they existed, right? So if, um, you know, you yeah, you take a company like Google, right? Um, it, it's, it's great. And I mean, still, obviously just a great example of capitalizing on data, but from day one, the whole search algorithm worked on, you know, collecting and analyzing data and optimizing experience, right? So uh, I, I don't know, but I get your point. People call it mature, but I think actually the more mature the company is, the more challenge they have because they weren't born of data, right? So um, I think, you know, companies have to think about getting younger, not more mature, ironically, on that, if, if, if you think that's true, right? Um, 
The second one, though, it's just to me, it's an excuse nowadays if people say, well, we don't have the data to interrogate it, because then I say, well, you're going to have to instrument whatever you're doing to collect that data, right? Like you just don't have a choice. Like if you want to survive into the future, you need to be able to do that. So, um, so if you don't know, if you can't answer the question of why that sales reps the best, because they're not using their, you know, your customer relationship management and you're not tracking sales and they're doing it on the back of napkins or whatever it might be, you have to say, we, you just can't continue to do that because it is predictable that at some point in the future, you're going to fail when your competitors um, can pull on levers you can't because they have that data, right? So I say, in general, I say we're at a really interesting time in history because I don't think opinion should count for anything anymore because if you have an opinion, um, I say that flippantly, you know, if, if we change the word opinion slightly, though. So the reason your opinion shouldn't count is because there's date. It's almost certainly if you have an opinion, right, it's either one of three things. It's a fact, in which case, at least for this point in history, it's a fact. And that's good. You should hold on to that, you know, maybe not be arrogant about it, but that's OK. Hang on to it because it's a fact, not opinion. It could be false, in which case you should let it go because it's going to catch up to you over time of what people think about you, right? Uh, or at least the circles that hopefully you wanna be in if you wanna be successful. But three, I think often your opinion's a hypothesis, right? So I say to customers a lot, it could be that you don't have the data, but then if you just think about what, you know, everyone now says follow the science, right? But if you think about what science is at its most basic, right, is, is um, you science often doesn't know, but it, then what you do is you create a hypothesis and you go test that hypothesis. So I think, uh, companies also have to get in that mindset of we don't have it, but we're going to have to invest um, to be able to collect the kind of data that we need to be able to collect to answer those questions. So uh, I think in terms of getting, in terms of answering, um, and then when I bring that up, what usually happens comes back is we can't even answer the, you know, the what and the how and the why questions. And to that I go, of course you can, because I can guarantee you have enough data that's proxy data that can answer those questions and stop investing in that because we can find data to get you those answers very quickly. I guarantee you within days, if not hours, we can get you a snapshot thing so that then you, because transformation projects, data transformation projects to answer those questions aren't data transformation projects. So I hope that answered the question. It, it does. Off a little it does. bit on a tangent there. But. No, it does. It does. And while we are discussing, you know, some of the, as you brought, some of the challenges these organizations could have, you know, saying that they don't have enough data or they're not capturing. Uh, and being on different, I'm still gonna use maturity. <laughs> I, I could yeah, No, that's okay. that's okay. <laughs> so like every organization being a different maturity curve of their data analytics transformation uh, and going through different, their own kind of challenges. Uh, what do you think, you know, are the main challenges first in becoming you know, a data-driven organization and more so in sustaining it. And, you know, what are some of the red flags that you might want to caution the organization on? This first thing you brought it, you know, you, they're not capturing the data. So similarly, you know, what do you think could be the other red flags they want to be aware of? Great question. I think the biggest, again, if we think people process technology, the technology and, pro and processes is kind of there now, whether they've adopted it or not, at least it's there. So I think the biggest is, uh, the people side by far, I think in an, in a number of ways. One is it's not intuitive to most people. Um, this, you know, go get data to 
get insights to do it. I just, uh, you know, a lot of people, either they're, you know, they're, they're schooling their history or whatever hasn't uh, gotten them there. So, um, but, but more than that, I think they delegate too much. Like, so I reached out to a EVP friend of a fairly big company um, just yesterday, actually, about, you know, talking about, you know, analytics and helping people be, you know, be smarter about it. And he came back with, again, reports to the CEO, pretty big company and goes, oh, some other department does analytics. And it, and it makes me really sad because every department, I think if they want to have a data culture, has to be able to ask and answer their own questions. So, uh, uh, you know, everyone in the business who is responsible for making a decision needs to be able to uh, come up with the data to do that, in my opinion. That's, that's fundamentally what a data culture is. So I think people don't train enough for that, right? So um, I'm sure we'll get to paint with data, but what we do with paint with data, the way I think about us at, at a high level first is we're, um, it's, it's a lot like, say, if you want to um, get um, stronger, more fit, you know, in better shape, right? So it, I think people have learned over the years, it is probably worth for a lot of people investing in a personal trainer, but what, but what you can't do is you can't have someone else, like you couldn't call me and go, um, Kirk, I really don't want to do squats. Could you go do them for me? Right? Like it's a funny concept, right? But, but what you could do is say, Hey, Kirk, I know you're an expert in, um, in exercise physiology. Uh, could you come out and make sure I'm doing my squats right? Such that I don't hurt my back at, at worst case or best case, you know, that I, you know, I get to the point I want to get to, and it takes me three years instead of six months because my form's not completely destructive, but it's not as optimal as it could be. So, uh, we position ourselves as not building dashboards for people, but teaching them how to ask questions while well, interrogate the right way to borrow from Eric Schmidt, right? Like, you know, how to interrogate things um, in that mindset, right? So, um, and part of it comes down to hiring. I think, by the way, this is at the heart of the diversity of what should be the reason why people should be looking for diversity beyond just being a good social thing to do is um, the, that, your chances of if your customer is a broad and wide customer, the other thing you want in people is it's hard. It's much easier to be empathetic back to our understanding of people. If you at least share some level of background with them, whether that be educational, cultural, whatever the case may be, because you already have, you already have a great, um, a great head start. Do you know what I mean? Like, so the more diverse, the more likely you are to capture the totality of the problem. So I think diversity is really important in this regard as well. And I, and I still hear people when they hire. Um, so hiring is part of the problem. I guess we get to people can't do it. So how do you hire people for it? I hear people say a lot, oh, that person's going to be a great cultural fit, which is a red flag. <laughs> it's a red flag because then you're continuing to work in your local maximums because there are more people like you. You should be saying, you should be saying, this person doesn't fit our culture at all, which I think is great because our culture needs to get broader. But you know, you still have to look for things in people. And I think the things you look for in people are, are they inquisitive? Do they question things? Do they, um, you know, do they, you know, uh, have what I I like, you know, to think of, you know, strong opinions loosely held, right? So they're willing to, um, they're willing to to come up with what they think's right, but they're very quick to say when they're wrong, when the data shows them they're wrong. Um, and then, so that's what, at the starting point is the first part of the question is, I don't think they're, they're hiring and training 
um, people to do these things. And I see it over and over again, right? It's just, we're going to outsource to this group of analysts or IT to build us these static dashboards that answer what and who questions, right? They keep, but, but we want a data culture. It's like, well, right? And then um, the second thing is that uh, to sustain it, you know, how do you sustain it is you have to reward it and, and reward it, not just financially rewarded, but uh, I see companies continuing to give out awards to people or recognize people for hero worship, right? And, and often luck, <laughs> like, so, you know, but not enough, hey, this person had, and it might be different at companies, again, to use yours, like data mature companies like Google, but a lot of companies, I see people rewarding, this person did this heroic thing, they happen to call a customer and they got them out of this and they didn't churn, right? But if you actually interrogated it, they, ju they just got lucky, right? Or they did it at a strength of personality as opposed to rewarding people that go, they noticed there was a problem, what they thought was a problem in their business. They went and collected some data. They went to an executive to see if they could do an experiment. And sure enough, there was a better way to do it. Like those are the kind of things that need to be rewarded and explicitly called out all the time in, in order to get there. So, you know, hire and train better and then, reward accordingly. I think are the two things people need to do because it's the people more than the process and the technology right now. You brought a great point about diversity and the way you put it, you know, uh, have this person is not a cultural fit. <laughs> and, I, and I've seen companies, you know, talking about it and hiding and even HR is talking about it. But it's a great way to put it. Of course, I mean, that person brings a new perspective then. Uh, and this is really close to my heart, like, you know, diversity pillars, and I'm really an advocate of that. So uh, I'm gonna use your nuggets, uh, you know, when I am hiring or discussing about hiring my teams. Okay, well, thank you, that's flattering. <laughs> and and again, I think I think the point to pull out of it is why diversity in the first place, right? It, I, hopefully people aren't losing sight of, you know, if you get someone that looks different than you, but thinks exactly like you, is that really diversity? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, you also mentioned about when we were discussing about organizations uh, and their data culture, uh, you discussed about visual analytics uh, briefly. And I want to touch briefly again on that. Uh, so where would you put visual analytics in You know, the data analytics transformation journey and how, why it is? important to have a visual analytics kind of a pillar yeah so i have to watch my own uh biases and testing them but the reason why i certainly think and, and have spent so much time in visual analytics as you could think of is almost the the top of the pyramid and um and and i think the most important part even though a tremendous amount of work has to happen below it to make it work first right to get that data that you can do um the reason for that is because we have so many things going on in our lives and so much visual stuff coming at us. There's one thing, like how do you distill things, right? Like how do you distill the right things down to people? Um, and the other one is in spite of, if you think about the two halves of our brains, if you will, to go to the Danny Kahneman thinking fast and slow, which I know has become incredibly popular in Silicon Valley these days, but, but it is true to get over all these human biases we have. Um, but but you know what we do know is that people make decisions from emotional, quick thinking places, um, which is very much the science of that is is associated to your visual cortex, right? So that's why cliches like a picture's worth a thousand words 
have stuck, right? Or even, you know, if you're giving a presentation, if people step back and think about it, if you create a, say a, a PowerPoint or Google slide or whatever, a presentation, and you've got title, bullet, bullet, and and you're trying to say something that's not on those slides, like people aren't going to hear you because they can't listen to you and read that bullet. But you could put up a picture and they could be exploring that picture and you could be talking and explaining that picture and their brain can handle both that picture and your words at the same time, right? So it's the, it basically, it's the visual part of your brain that, uh, that, uh, that both gives you quick ability to do quick response and also the ability, it's much more attached to your emotional side of your brain and emotions usually where we make decisions from. So we're effectively taking these objective decisions or where we want objective decisions to be made and we're bringing them up to the visual cortex of the brain so that people can act on them very quickly. So that's why it's the most important. And it's also the reason why it's the most important when we go back to the training and hiring of people from the last answer, that the people use that properly and don't mislead people with it because it's so powerful. Um, and, you know, we've seen this happening during, we've seen this happen during COVID, right? When case counts go up and people see curves go up, right? And, um, and they're very quick to, you know, either maybe overreact or underreact. It's interesting depending on their, you know, but, and, and the reason for something like that is because uh, we learned the case counts are such a bad thing to track because it's so dependent on testing as an example, right? Um, so I think it's important to to make sure that people, and, and there's always a bit of agenda and everything, so you can't completely get rid of the agenda, but to make sure that you know, people have a way to check their own biases to make sure that they're not presenting something visual that's going to move the company in the wrong way. So with, with that power comes a lot of responsibility. So that's part of the training, do you know what I mean? On how to, um, how to maximize things like pre-attentive attributes, like color and size and length, and um, which is pretty, the, the great thing about visual analytics, and I think, you know, most of my world's still in Tableau, just because I think it's the quickest and fastest product to do it, but is, um, I like to say a lot, the great thing about it is that visual analytics is actually pretty easy, objectively. It's a pretty easy thing. Um, the tricky thing about it is it's not intuitive though. And usually people associate intuitive things with easy, but just because something's intuitive, it could be hard and it could be easy, but it's not intuitive. So as a result of that, um, what I see a lot is people over-engineering the heck out of things. And people look and go, oh, they're so good. I'm like, well, they'd be way better if they knew way less, actually, because because like they're so embedded in doing it wrong at this point, right? Or suboptimally, if not wrong, you know, try to pure right and wrong. But um, but definitely, in, and I say to people all the time, if a good place to go look is something like um, the New York Times, to their credit, whether they have biases or not, if, but if you look at nothing other than uh, some of their charts, like say you can subscribe to the um, to their morning. They do a really good, they're like an example of someone who does a really good job of visual analytics. Like when you look at a chart, whether it's a point, again, that maybe you agree with the point they're trying to make, it's so obvious what their point is just by looking at the chart. And it's great because when you see that and you don't have to analyze you know, analyze the visual or the table or whatever, and like you're drawn into it, then you're into the right conversation, right? Then in a business, you're like, okay, do we want to, that's clearly a problem. Now the question is, do we want to solve that problem? And how do we want to solve that problem? And hopefully you give people paths to answer those questions as well. But 
You just want people to identify quick so they can, instead of arguing about numbers or what they're looking at, that it's super clear what they're looking at and they can get to the real point. Um, Cause the data is only to help direct people in the right way, right? At the end of the day, it's not supposed to be about the data itself. So right. I, that's why I think it's the most important one, right? Um, oh, I agree. I agree being yeah. myself, uh, uh, a visual person or spent a lot of time in visual analytics, I, I definitely agree with you. And you've been doing a lot of that at Paint with Data, uh, as I understand. So uh, it would be interesting if you can share more about your venture Paint with Data and you know how you're helping the, the different organization in their analytics transformation. Um, yeah, hopefully this uh, this probably leads to a wrap up in a way of this, what I've been saying anyway, which is, so we have a three-step process. So we're, we're different than other consultancies, I think, in that we don't, I mean, sometimes because of staffing issues that our clients, we have to, but we don't really want to outsource dashboard development if we can help it, because we don't think they should be, not because we don't feel we can't build great dashboards. It's just... Uh, fundamentally, we don't think they should be outsourcing it, right? So our process is a three-step process where we always start with, you know, what are the one to three, maybe up to five really key business questions that are, you know, keeping them um, up to date, you know, up at night, whatever metaphor you want to use. So we try to go deep on those and say, like, you know, we don't want to know your KPIs necessarily. Do you know what I mean? Like, we want to know, like, what are those questions that you it, that your business you think would fundamentally change if you had the answer to? So we usually start there. Um, and then um, if we wanted to understand that better, typically, I had one of these with a client yesterday. Like, don't show me your data model. I can figure that out. Like, walk me through the actual application you use. It's collecting the data so I can better understand, you know, why where that data goes in, where people might be entering it wrong, all those sorts of things, right? So I want to know how, how people are actually using it, right? So, but but step one anyway is, you know, what are those um, what are those one to five questions say and making sure we understand it. The second thing is we help them, I say shape more than prepare or, or anything else, shape their data to answer those questions, right? So I think most of the time they at least have proxy metrics. And it's amazing to me, even with like a bunch of strong data engineers out there, that people don't know how to shape data for analysis. So a simple kind of practical example, um, you take a product like Tableau, people will do year-to-date calculations outside of Tableau, which is a really easy math calculation for an analytics product. But And then they take a lot of power away from people. But on the flip side, they'll be doing string calculation transforms that only need to be done once, like over and over and over again. So we just make sure the data is shaped right, which doesn't take that long. We're not talking building warehouses. We're talking like a day or two just to, you know, prep it out, the only amount of data they need, get it out to them. And then three is that we get them focused on um, highlighting insights instead of presenting information. So basically answering those questions, right? And, and we go through that cycle with them of, you know, again, what are the key questions? Is your data shaped properly to answer those questions? And then pulling out insights and not just presenting information to them. And that means getting all the way down to the lowest level of detail quickly within three to four, four clicks maximum, get to the actual transaction customer experience that caused the problem. And then once we do that a couple of times, hopefully, ideally, what we would have is then a longer term relationship that goes back to that a coaching one where, you know, we act as kind of their personal trainer and depending on their level of maturity, maybe they engage us a couple of days a week, maybe 
a couple of days a month, whatever it is, just to go, is my form still good? You know what I mean? Are these squats? Okay? You know, so is this presenting, this is what I'm trying to present. Is this presenting it properly? You know, so that we always hone in on those, how to best present these things visually to have the impact that you want to have. Right. And, and over time, we always say we did our best job. If they don't, at some point we don't need a relationship anymore because they don't need us anymore. Right. So again, it's, doesn't always work out that way just because with the great resignation going on right now, there's so much turnover, but the day could come when it gets, you know, stable again, that, uh, and that's okay with us. Do you know what I mean? Cause our mission really is um, to help people uh, get good at visual analytics at the end of the day and that everyone should be able to do it. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, and before we go, I want to ask like one life lesson that you would like to share with people. And this is something I usually ask for uh, guests on Inspired. Uh, so uh, what is something that you want to share as your life lesson? Um, yeah, my life lesson is always be willing to accept that you're wrong. Um, and in the interest of time, know that even when you're right, you've been right, that's probably going to be wrong at some point in the future, even though it was right in the past. So uh, I think if you do that, if you have the humility or whatever it is to do that, um, it, it, it has, I mean, that's, that's what makes you a lifelong learner. So people say, be a lifelong learner. I think that's an easy thing to say. The way you be a lifelong learner is if you assume that you're wrong, then you have to go learn how to be right. So you'll be way more likely to go uh, look for stuff. I know I listened to your interview with uh, Harish and I liked his, he talked about, you know, you have to know how to unlearn things, which is, which is part of that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, if you think you're right, because you become an expert and it took a long time, those are the hardest ones to get rid of. So you, you have to be able to willing to unlearn what you do. And I think, I think that what, what can get you there, because it's a hard emotional thing is to go, it's okay, because I might have been right. Do you know what I mean? But things have changed. Um, if I just sum it up, I say this to people a lot, I, probably 15 or so years ago now, Starbucks used to have this thing on the side of their cups, was, which was called the way I see it. And uh, I'm not sure mine would have ever fit or, you know, that they're interested in mine. But if I, if I would have said the way I see it, I would have described things as um, when I was 25, I thought I knew everything. Um, when I was 35, I realized I knew nothing, but I knew a lot more than I knew when I was 25. <laughs> um, so, you know, the last thing you can be, right, is, uh, is, is that, and, and a lot of things go with it. Also, when I was young, it used to mean a lot to me um, to be the smartest guy in the room. And then I remember probably in, you know, my, hopefully in my mid or late twenties, I didn't get too old. I remember just, it hit me like a ton of bricks one day. And I went like, dude, you're in all the wrong rooms. <laughs> like you do not want to be the smartest person in the room. Cause how are you supposed to learn anything that way? So, um, so I always look for people. It's why I love our conversations. Cause you know, they're challenging in a good way. They make me think. And I think that's really important. So the concise answer is just always be willing to admit that you're wrong and always be inquisitive to go try to, to, to figure out, you know, why you're wrong and what the right answer is like all the time. Thanks for sharing that. And there's a wonderful book as well, which I read some time back, uh, which talks about learning and assuming that, you know, uh, there were times when you were right, but now you might not be right uh, because, you know, things have changed. So it's called, the book is uh, Think Again. I don't know if you have 
No, yeah. I'm gonna check. I'm gonna check yeah. that out. Uh, it it talks about this concept really well. I I really love that book. I will definitely look that one up. Great. So thank you so much, Kirk, for sharing such valuable lessons with us and also your experience on data analytics transformation and building a data-driven culture. I really appreciate you taking time to speak with me today. Uh, but before we leave, uh, Kirk, where can people find you and connect with you? Also, if people want to know more about Paint with Data and how you could help, what would be the best way to engage you and your team? Um, yeah, that's great. You can go to paintwithdata.com, which now I realize I have to update. Um, <laughs> or you can find me at kmunro, M-U-N-R-O-E, um, at paintwithdata.com or at Kirk Munro, K-I-R-K-M-U-N-R-O-E, on Twitter or uh, LinkedIn. The advantage of having a name of like Kirk Munro's, there's not a lot of Kirk Munro's out there. So I'm pretty easy to find on either uh, uh, Twitter or LinkedIn, which I keep completely for professional stuff. So, um, uh, and again, at, or at paintwithdata.com. Super. Thank you. And many thanks everyone for tuning in today. If you know someone who you think we could interview or if you would like to connect with me, drop me a line on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. I hope you have an amazing day. Stay happy, stay healthy and be inspired. Thank you.